Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the blessings you shower us with. But more importantly, Lord, we desire to honor and worship you for who you are. As our sovereign creator to whom we owe everything. Both our existence and our sustainment and our future. Lord, we thank you that you give us so many enjoyable things to um, uh, to just enjoy that are pleasant. But you also are with us when you send difficult things our way according to your uh, wise guidance as our Father. And that you can give us strength to endure that. Lord, and we thank you for that. Lord, in recent months, we've had uh, so many people in, the, in our fellowship that have lost loved ones. Uh, or are caring for older parents and relatives now. Lord, as we recognize death is something that all of us are going to go through, except for those that are still here when your son returns. And Lord, we thank you that we can recognize the somberness, the sobriety of that, and at the same time rest and have comfort in you. And Lord, I pray for those like my own family that recently have lost people, Lord, that you would... Can you continue to be a comfort that death is not the end? Lord, I also pray for, uh, once again, is there just additional turmoil in our society and government and decisions about how to view human life and what to do about it? Uh, Lord, we pray as Paul charged the church to, Lord, we desire to pray for our leaders and for the government, even those that are not believers that we might enjoy a degree of peace, that we can worship you and spread your word unfettered. But at the same time, Lord, we recognize that Jesus has said it's going to be a normal thing for us to suffer persecution at the hands of the society around us. And we thank you for the peculiar situation you've given us recently of, of the peace and safety we've had here. Lord, help us face whatever difficulties are ahead with grace and with confidence in you and with an attitude of uh, grace and love, even for our enemies. Lord, I pray this morning also that as we uh, worship you, as we pray, as we sing, that you would accept these offerings from our hands, humbly offered. It's an acknowledgement of who you are. And Lord, we pray as we listen to your word this morning that you would help us to hear what you want us to hear and respond the way you want us to hear. And we're dependent on you for understanding and the power to respond, power by your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we read in Galatians that Jesus died on the cross so that through faith in him, we can receive the blessings of Abraham. And the question is, well, what is that? It's interesting that writing to a largely Gentile church about the spiritual life in Christ that... Jesus bases, uh, excuse me, that Paul bases the foundation and explanation for Christianity in the Old Testament in Genesis. And it reinforces what those of you who know me know that I've been pounding the pulpit on for 40 years. And that is that the New Testament does not replace the Old Testament. It continues the story that God began in Genesis 1.1. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Genesis this morning and fly through it because there is actually an overall 
message in Genesis. It's full of little messages, but there is really an overall message. And what we need to do first is think about what Genesis is. And let's think about who wrote it. I'm not going to defend this, but I'm going to uh, just work from the assumption that Genesis was written by Moses. That seems to be the way the New Testament writers thought of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that, Je- that they were written by Moses. And when and why did Moses write Genesis through Deuteronomy? You recall that God had Moses lead the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt, and they traveled through the desert, and they're now parked just east of the Jordan River, about to cross into a place that they've never been. And what Moses is doing is he preached a sermon then, that's what Deuteronomy is, But he wrote this book at that time to those people explaining how in the world did we end up here? How in the world did we end up being an identifiable group of people different from other nations camped here out in the wilderness about to cross into a land where we've never been and under a new basic constitution or set of laws given us to us by God. How did that happen? Now, that's important for Moses to explain to them so they'll know what to do. But the other reason that Moses is explaining this to them is because most of them were not happy about it. They did not like where they were. They did not like Moses' leadership. In fact, they did not like Moses. They were not excited about crossing the river and going into the land. And in fact, most of them wanted to go back to Egypt. Because however bad slavery was in Egypt making bricks, for most of them, they thought that was better than where God had put them there next to the river. And so Moses is writing this to these people. Realize that's the original audience. This is not an audience that's starting with a blank slate. They're on the edge of the river saying, what are we doing here? So here's the thing. You and I are sitting in here, church, looking forward to heaven. We're looking forward to Jesus coming back and us going into heaven. And some of us may not be that happy about how God's handling the situation now either. What are we waiting for? What is the blessing we're waiting for? Well, when God explains that to to you and me today... It's exactly the same starting point as it was for the Israelites and what Moses is going to explain in Genesis. Because we have exactly the same starting point, exactly the same promises. We're just two steps further down in God fulfilling the promises he made to Abraham. But we still have the same starting point. So... What we're going to do is go through Genesis... And the outline that you have in your bulletin insert is not my outline and it's not an outline from a commentary. It's the outline that Moses put in the book. And we'll see that in a little bit later. And it will be a hundred times easier to understand the book of Genesis if you read it according to Moses' outline and take each section as a unit and then follow the story. It'll make a lot more sense. So how does it start? It starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you're familiar with this story. God makes a very, 
Uh, he makes the heavens and the earth. And there's some things we want to notice. It describes that the creation was very neat and orderly and it was working well. And it says that people were blessed. I'm a veterinarian. I know I, I've read this a thousand times and the animals were blessed too. Did you notice that? The animals and people were blessed. And God's evaluation was that his creation is good. He says seven times it's good in one page. Now, there's some implications to that that it doesn't say here, but these are the implications throughout the whole rest of Scripture that are made very clear. Um, One is that God owns everything. He made it so it belongs to him, and that includes us. And so what that means is he has every right to tell me what to do, even if that cheeses me off as an American. He has every right to tell me what to do. That's the imagery of the potter and the clay, right? The potter can do whatever he wants to with the clay. Also, God is the only one who knows how everything works. So when we're questioning why God chooses to do what he did, God has every right to challenge us the same way he did Job. He said, all right, Job. Hitch up your britches and answer me this. Where were you when I laid down the foundations of the earth? I find that passage in Job both encouraging and terrifying. How do you like to God say, David, hitch up your britches. I got some questions for you. You want to challenge me? I'm going to challenge you. But that's an encouraging thing because he knows what he's doing. And then the third thing I put down here is God created the world. Created things are not God. Okay, we don't think about that so much. But, uh, you know, the earth is not my mother. And the sun and the moon are not gods. But if you're in key Sunday school class, the thing is we make ourselves God when we're created things. All right, so God created the heavens and the earth. Moses wants us to know that. But what comes next? So what became of the heavens and the earth? Look at chapter 2, verse 4. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Now, the way Moses outlines this book is each section begins with this. Now, there's no telling how your Bible translated it because the Hebrew, it says, toledot, and then something. These are the generations of. And basically, what he's saying is, what became of in each of these sections is going to reach back into something or someone in the previous section and elaborate on it and carry on the story. That's how it's organized. So what became of the heavens and the earth? And this is 2.4 through 4.26. Well, as you know, um, in verse 4, it begins again. This is not a second account of creation because... Some redactor couldn't decide which one was right. He's just going back over creation again, but now he's going to say what happened to it. And as you know, what happened is it was spoiled by the rebellion of some of God's created beings, so it's now under God's curse. That's the point of this section. God had uh, put them in the garden, gave gave man and woman instructions, blessed them, gave them everything they needed, God said it was good, but Adam and Eve thought it was not. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Their eyes were both open, 
and they knew they were naked, and they realized immediately they had messed up. What Adam and Eve did is they rejected God's authority, they rejected his wisdom, and they rejected his truthfulness and decided, we're going to do what we want to do. And as a consequence of that, God put a curse on them and the world. And as you see, reading in verse 14 and down, there's the curse on the serpent. Uh, there's, um, uh, there's enmity between the serpent and woman. Woman's childbirth is now going to be hard. The ground is cursed. Uh, for man, now there's going to be thorns and thistles. Things aren't going to work right. Um, and there's going to be animosity between the husband and wife. And so what we find now is the world is under a curse and it doesn't work like it was originally made. And I will point out the scripture always unembarrassingly states that the world is subjected to futility because of God. That was God's plan to make things not work well. And he had a reason for doing that. It was a consequence of our sin. But you notice that these guys didn't die immediately. And at the very end of this section in 426, it says that, uh, well, I'll read in verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So what we end up with in this section is people have rebelled against God, and now creation is cursed and it's not working well. But there are still people living. They are having children. And people begin to call on the name of the Lord. That's a little bit vague at this point. But I think if we remember uh, Moses' original audience, what they would have thought when they read that. This is probably what we see is that whatever curse is on the earth, there is still some kind of connection between God and people and people's consciousness of God calling on him at the very least when they're in trouble and need help. So there's still a tension going on. And I'll mention this. There are 12 sections in this book. And all but two of them end in tension. The first one ends happy. And the second one ends happy. And all ten sections in between end with some kind of tension and conflict. So, what became of man and his descendants? That's the next section. Uh, your Bible may say, may say Adam or it may say man. Adam is just the Hebrew word for man. Well, what happened is... They produce descendants in their own image. They're mortal and sinful. So God planned to wipe out mankind and animals. That's what this section is about. Chapter 5, verse 1. This generation of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Okay, this is actually the third time we're given the creation account. But this is just a summary statement here. Verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, 
and named him Seth. God made Adam in his image. Now Adam is having children in his image. Well, what is his image? Well, his image is sinful. What happened between verse 2 and 3? Well, the previous section. Now, Moses is assuming that we're all adults here and that we're reading responsibly and we're not just jumping in the middle and not paying attention. He's assuming you read the first three pages of the book. And so you can supply this man's sin between verse 2 and 3. And so this is what happened. He produced descendants in uh, in their own kind. And so God ends up saying in verse 5, Then the Lord saw, of chapter 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He was sorry that he made him. He was grieved in his heart. And he said, I'll blot out man whom I've created. I'm sorry I made him. But, We heard earlier this enigmatic statement about Enoch walked with God and he was not. What is that? And then the section ends, verse 8 of chapter 6, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we got attention here. Men are wicked. They're all wicked. God's going to blot them out. But there's this guy, and I want to say when Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, in the overall view, that doesn't mean he was necessarily a good guy we know that from what Moses is going to teach the people and Moses is the one who wrote this it means God has chosen to look upon this guy with grace and favorably so what's going to happen we got a problem here that takes us in the next section so what happened to Noah and his descendants chapter 6 through 9 6 verse 9 Well, what happens is, for the first of many times in the Scripture, God provides a way of escape from the pending judgment which Noah has access to through faith. If Noah believes what God told him and trusts him and goes and builds an ark, he'll be delivered from this judgment. And that's exactly what happens. He accepts that by faith. And God gives them a fresh start. After the flood, they get out of the ark. And um, in chapter 9, God, um, or when they get out of the ark in 8 and 9, God basically charges Noah with the same thing he had told Adam and Eve. So how did that turn out? They did the same thing. They did the same thing that Adam and Eve did. The whole family falls into sin and conflict again. And we don't really need to get hung up on the whole thing about uh, we know that Noah got drunk and there was something about shameful and what the kids did. And if we look down at chapter 9, verse 25, Noah says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. But he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So he lived a little longer and then he died. A couple of things I want to say about this. Uh, a lot of debate about whether Noah's sin was simply the drunkenness or if it was representative of something else. But the whole thing about uncovered nakedness 
is that is both a shame in Hebrew culture and it's also a metaphor for shameful things. In a way, it doesn't matter. The point is there's sinful behavior going on and the way the, handle, the family handles it and responds to it is a sinful and shameful way that produces conflict and that's the point. Uh, and I want to point out one thing I don't want to slide by and that is blessings and cursings in the Old Testament. Uh, you can read whole books about that. I'll just mention in the Old Testament when patriarchs or these people pronounce these curses and blessings. These are prophetic utterances that were given to them by God. These are not these men determining and establishing what the future is going to be. It would take a whole hour to defend that position. Uh, but God even does this through um, pagans like Balaam, who was a false prophet. God miraculously worked through him to pronounce blessings and cursings, but that was an oracle of God, and that's what's going on. Uh, we're supposed to pray for our children, but I cannot do for my children and my grandchildren. Two of them are here this morning. I cannot do for them what the patriarchs did. Okay. So, what became of these guys? If they're starting to sin again and they're in conflict, what happens? Well, what happens is they are fruitful and multiply. But they dishonor and disobey God by promoting themselves instead of Him, desiring to, quote, lift up a name for ourselves. And so God confuses their languages and scatters them to frustrate their plans. If you start reading in chapter 10, verse 1, now these are the records of Shem, Ham, and uh, Japheth, and it lists them then, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. It lists all their descendants and starts describing the language they spoke and where in the world they lived, scattered out all over geographically. And then what happens in your Bible, and I'll try not to pound the pulpit on this, but the very unfortunate chapter break of chapter 11, um, just white out 11 there, he continues, 11 verse 1 through 9 explains how and why they scattered and are speaking different languages. Uh, because 11.1, it starts out, now the whole earth used the same language in the same words. Okay, now you might be confused because in chapter 10, it said, well, wait a minute, these guys are speaking different languages scattered all over the place. Well, 11.1 is doing what happens all through the Old Testament is the writer is backtracking to explain how the previous thing happened. Okay, if you assume every verse in the Old Testament is the next thing that happened, you'll be lost 75% of the time. Okay, are you with me? So he explains why, and it says in verse 4 that these people were saying, Come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. But the Lord comes down, confuses their languages so they can't work together. In verse 9, it says, Therefore, the name of that tower that they were building is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. They're scattered because God scattered them. And there are lang many languages because God confused their languages to frustrate their efforts to cooperate in rebelling against God. 
Well, that sounds like a mess. So what became of Shem? Now, why does he pick Shem? You remember what Noah, when he pronounced his blessings and cursings, he pronounced a curse on uh, Canaan and Ham, but he pronounced a blessing on the God of Shem. It's interesting he worded it that way. He doesn't say Shem. He says the God of Shem. But anyway, something good is going to happen to Shem. The previous section, the world's in a mess, but what is it about Shem that's going to be good? Something, some kind of blessing. Well, he has, uh, we start reading in 11 verse, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem. And so it traces Shem's genealogy down to verse 26. Terah lived 70 years. Terah was a descendant of Shem. And he became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Well, what's that doing in there? We'll come back to that in a moment. So what became of Terah? That's where the previous section left off. What became of Terah and his descendants? Okay, this is probably one of about short of creation and the cross and the return of Christ. This next event is about the biggest event in all of Scripture. God sets apart one of Terah's three sons, a guy named Abram, for a special purpose. Now, what I want to say is this section, the generations of Terah, does not start in chapter 12, verse 1. It starts in chapter 11, verse 27. There's a reason for that, because this section is not the story of Abraham. This section is the story of God setting a guy apart from his family, Terah, and his nation. And that's why it starts in verse 27. In fact, uh, Stephen, when he gives a sermon in Acts chapter 7, this is where he starts. He starts in... uh, 1127, not 12.1. So what is this special purpose? What does he do? God comes to this guy, Abram, and he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I'll show you, and I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, the ones who curse, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the blessing that Christ died to give us, but what is it? We can acknowledge at this point, if you're coming to the Bible with a blank slate, that's a pretty vague piece of information, isn't it? I mean, what, what's a blessing for he and might be different from what's a blessing for me? What do you think is a blessing? Well, of course, what we're going to want to know is what does God think is a blessing? That's what we're going to want to know. I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now, over the next few pages and events and years in Abraham's life, God's going to elaborate on aspects of that being more people in a particular land. uh, But also that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. For those of us who are not Jews, that's pretty good news. I want to pick up just a minute on this thing about I will make your name great. 
Do you remember two sections back when the people, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth's descendants, they stayed together and they were building a tower to reach into heaven. And why were they doing it? To make a name for themselves. God didn't like that. Because they were making a name, they were building a tower to heaven to elevate themselves and make a name for themselves, not to worship God. God says, now I am the one who's going to elevate your name. I'll be the one who does it. Now, we need to make this connection. Okay, now I mentioned that between these two sections is the genealogy of Shem. What in the world is that doing in there? Seems pretty superfluous. You know, Hebrew names... A lot of Hebrew names have a meaning. And the name Shem has a meaning. Does anyone in here happen to know what that is? Of course, our associate uh, pastor knows. <laughs> Does anyone know? Shout it out. Keith. Name. Shem means name. Shem's name was name. And Moses is connecting these two. If you try to make a name for yourself in disregard for God, that brings judgment. But if you trust God and let him take care of you and honor him, he'll make your name great. It'll be a gracious gift from him. Um, I put a map up here. I, I kind of zoomed out here just so you could get oriented because I always just... When I just see a map of Israel, I never know where I am in the world. I'm not a geographer. I backed up a little bit where you can see Italy up there in the left, um, upper left corner. Um, Most of us know where that is. Greece kind of in the middle. The bottom left there, that's north part of Africa. So you see where all the writing is, is biblical lands. I'm going to zoom in just a little bit. So probably know where we are is... The world is full of these people groups scattered all over the world, speaking different languages, who are all in rebellion against God. And God calls this one guy, Abram, and said, I want you to leave your family and your people, and I'm going to make a nation out of you. And you're going to be my representatives on earth. And through you, I'm going to bless all those others. I'm not forgetting about the others. I'm going to bless them through you. Now, Abraham and his family were Aramaeans from up here at the top center of the screen. The Bible never really tells us why Terah and his sons were down in Ur, but that's not where they were from. But anyway, later they go up to Haran and we're told several times, in fact, Abraham himself tells us he was born up here, and that's his land. That becomes important later. But anyway, they were Aramean pagan idolaters. And God called him out and said, I'm going to send you to a place you've never been before. And he goes down here. He says, I'm going to give you that place, and you will be my people. Uh, zoomed in a little bit. What God does is he shows Moses a little, I mean, uh, Abraham a little strip in here and says, I'm going to give you all of this. That will become important later. Okay, so what became? He set them apart, and so the story traces God's activity to fulfill this promise, his way, By His power. This promise can only be fulfilled His way and by His power. 
And so there's several stories that you're probably familiar with and uh, scattered around about, um, oh, various people. First obstacle, of course, is Abraham and Sarah are very old, way beyond childbearing years. She is at least. And, um, and they've apparently been married for decades and never had children, so what's going to change? Well, God enters the picture. That's what changes. Uh, various kings threaten them, uh, threaten to take Sarah away from Abraham. So there are a lot of outside obstacles. But really a more important thing than outside obstacles that God protects Abraham from is that God does not allow Abram to hurry things along with his own plan B and plan C. A major part of this story and all throughout God's dealings with his people in the Bible when he's promised them a future is that they get impatient waiting for it. This is the whole theme of the series that Pastor Terry is doing on Sunday mornings with the guys that are talked about in Hebrews 11. These are all people who are anxiously anticipating the promise that God has made for something better, a restored existence with him, but they didn't get to see it in this life. Okay, you and I are not any different from the patriarchs or the people during the period of the judges or the people during the monarchy. Is We think if God's going to bless us, meaning make me comfortable, he needs to do it now or he failed in his job. Right? Maybe you don't. That's, that's my gut reaction. So Abram, you know, year after year after year goes by and he doesn't have any children. So his wife has a brilliant idea, which I'm sure you wives, well, we won't elaborate on this too much, but Abraham's wife has a brilliant idea. We're obviously not going to have children. Several years have gone by. We're already past having children. Several years have gone by. God's not... God's not making things happen, so I will. Here, you take my maid, I'm giving her to you as another wife, and we'll have a child by her. Well, that's what happens, and they have a child, which they name Ishmael. Uh, But then what that does is God says to Abram, no. I'm not going to fulfill this promise for you to become a nation, for you to have children and become a nation, by you figuring out what to do in your own strength. It's going to have to be by me, miraculously, through Sarah. But what his efforts did, it produced conflict between Ishmael, who is now Abraham's firstborn, and as we see later, the child that's going to be born by God's power, according to his promise, will be Isaac. So I want to take a moment to focus in a little bit on this deal with Ishmael. Um... You know, every event in here we could easily spend a long time on. But even though it was Sarah's idea, Abraham's wife, it was her idea to give Hagar to Abraham as a wife and to have children. Now, speaking of being Americans and not liking being told what to do, there's never indication that Hagar had any, any say in any of this at all. Well, she has this child and she does get a little bit of an attitude after she finds out she's pregnant. But what it does is then that cheeses Sarah off 
And so Sarah just starts treating her really ugly to the point that Hagar runs away. But God comes to Hagar and says, Hagar, I know you're expecting a child, but I'm going to do things for this child and I'm going to bless him. You need to go back. As hard as that is, you go back because I have a plan. So she does. So she goes back and is still another over 13 years before Sarah finally has a child. Abraham has a child through Sarah. It's the one God had promised. But now Hagar's child starts making fun of little baby half-brother. So Sarah, Isaac's mother, again gets angry. And she tells Abram, we've got to kick this lady out. And so they do. They kick her out in the desert, and she wanders around. And we're going to pick up the story in chapter 21. It's pretty important. Moses went to the... God, God had Moses go to the trouble to put this in here because he wants us to read it. Now, you think about unjust. Sarah has kicked her out for having this child, and Sarah does not want to share the blessing with anyone else. So you can imagine how Hagar feels. You're the one that had me have this child, and now you're throwing me out. So they're out, verse 14 so of chapter 21. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. The well of the well of Oath. It's down waste the southern part. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes, and she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away. For she said, Don't let me see the boy die. She sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. you think that really happened? You know, there's a lot of the Bible where God just says, this happened, this happened, this happened. But when the story slows down and they go to dialogue and you're there, it's because God wants us to be here with her. God wants us to be with these people and experience this with them. And here she's been treated so unjustly, thrown out, Her son's about to die, and she doesn't want to watch. Have you ever seen someone die? I watched my mother die three weeks ago. And that's not the first time I've been with someone who dies. It's not pretty. She knows that. She doesn't want to watch. Um... I'm a veterinarian, and most of my adult life I earn my living as a veterinarian. And um, I don't know how many animals I've watched die. I'm sure it's hundreds. Uh, it looks exactly the same. People and animals. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, the writer actually talks about that. He talks about when people die, when animals die, it looks the same. And he talks about the implications of that. But my point is here... God wants us to be here with her and realize this is true. Now, 
Hagar could not be any more of a nobody on the planet. How could you be more of a nobody than Hagar? She's an immigrant house help who's just ended up being a problem and she's been kicked out. Take care of yourself. Look at the next line. Verse 17. God heard the lad crying. God heard the lad crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter with you, Hagar? Don't fear. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. And arise, lift up the lad and hold him by the hand, for I'll make a great nation of him. And God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. The point I want to make here is it doesn't matter how small you are, how unjustly you've been treated, and how far outside of what seems to be God's grand worldwide scheme of building His kingdom. God hears you when you cry. And God hears your child when he cries. And what His encouragement to Hagar is, I have a plan for this. I'm not out of control. Now, not all of us, if our children are sick and about to die, is the Lord going to tell us, oh, he'll live and he'll become the father of many nations. The Lord might say, I'm going to take him home. Or the Lord might say, I'm going to leave him in a wheelchair. Or the Lord might say, He's never going to be any older than six years old. Even if he lives to be 50, he'll always have the mind of a six-year-old. But the point is, (laughs) we go back to the first part. What does it mean that God made the heavens and the earth? Do we trust his wisdom and his power? God is not ignoring people outside the chosen line. Rumor, this is the line of Terah. Abram is just one of them. There's a lot of other people. God is dealing with all of them. And God's going to demonstrate that this fulfillment of this promise, it's going to be unconventional. This is going to be true throughout all of Scripture. Rarely ever is the firstborn the one who the promise is perpetuated through or receives the blessing. It's also supernatural. It's not the one born by strength, but by God's power. Now, What's going to happen is, and this is why it's a, um, the, the um, I keep wanting to use the Hebrew word, uh, the generations of Terah, is he's separated, and also in Abraham. Abraham has several sons by three different wives. We tend to forget about Keturah. She came after Sarah. He had six sons by her. But God sets one apart. So what became of him? In all of this story, one of the main things that God brings up with Abraham when he says, I'm going to make you a blessing, and through you I'm going to bless all the world, that the way you receive that blessing is through faith. And one of the times that God is elaborating on this, in chapter 15, God tells Abraham, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. And then Abraham believed the Lord 
And God reckoned to him as righteousness. I think Moses is assuming we can read this back about Noah being righteous. Certainly Noah was not perfect. We know he wasn't. We're told about his sin. But apparently he trusted the Lord. God in his grace will regard that trust if we trust him as righteousness. Right? That's what the Galatians reading. That's the whole point of Galatians. Whatever this blessing is that God promised to Abraham, the way to get it and the only way to get it is to trust God. You can't make it happen under your own strength just because you're impatient. So this section ends with two of Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac, separated and in conflict. Remember, their mothers were in conflict, Ishmael and Isaac were. So the story continues. So what became of Ishmael? It's a little short one paragraph section. Look in 25. Twenty-five, twelve. Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abram's son, who Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian bore. What happened? There at the end, verse 18. He settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled in defiance of his relatives. The family's breaking apart. God is giving Abraham this stuff up here. Ishmael and his descendants are settling down here. Settling in defiance. So what happened to Isaac? Well, Isaac has two sons, but once again, and God has promised Abraham that the blessing is going to be perpetuated through Isaac. And Isaac does have two sons. They're twins. But God again demonstrates that the fulfillment will not be. uh, It'll be unconventional. It's not the firstborn. It's going to go to Jacob, not Esau. And it's also supernatural. Uh, At the very beginning, Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he uh, took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, sister of Laban. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. Okay, Isaac's mother was barren, but Isaac was born. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren. But she had twins. But when? 20 years later, they were married 20 years. So they had twins, but... This is the second longest section in Genesis... But because of the gross sin on the part of everyone involved, the family is blown apart. There is lying, cheating, and stealing like you would think it was silly if you watch a soap opera on TV. You would think that's overdone. Well, there's nothing beyond what these folks were capable of doing. Isaac himself, his wife, his boys, lying, cheating, and stealing. Even when Isaac goes off to Uncle Laban, they just spend 20 years trying to out-cheat each other. It's absolutely amazing. And how does the section end? It ends with Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob, burying him. In fact, let's turn to that, 35, 29. 
Um, Chapter uh, 35, verses 28, it's the end of the section. Now, the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last. Talking about watching people die. When I was a kid, I used to think that was a euphemism. If you've seen people or animals die, you know that's not a euphemism. That's a very graphic description. Very graphic description. Breathed his last and died. And he was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Scene of the section. So what happened? Another cliffhanger. Okay, ten of these generation sections are cliffhangers. What happened? What happened to Esau? That's the next section. These are the records of the generations of Esau. Now this is a little short. It's one paragraph. And there's going to be two generations of Esau. And people that think the Bible is a joke laugh about it and say, well, see, whoever wrote it didn't know what he was doing. Well, they just don't know how to read. Look what it says. Now, these are the records of generations of Esau. That is Edom. Now, I didn't go over it, but if you know the story, Edom was Esau's nickname, and Edom means red. And do you remember why he got the nickname red? It's because he sold his birthright to his younger brother, Because he was hungry for a pot of this red stew. And so his nickname ever after was that. And so Moses is wanting us to remember, wait a minute, where is Esau in this blessing? Well, he thought it was a joke. He blew it off just because he was hungry one afternoon. He sold it. And so what it is, if you look at the last line in this section, verse 8. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So now he is down here. You ever heard of Petra? That's where he is. He's down there. So it's explaining how and why he's separated from his brother. So what's the next one? Why is there another generations of Esau in the next section? Verse 9. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. So what it's doing here is it's now explaining how there came to be these nations of Edomites who had kings even before Israel had a king. There were Edomites down there. Now this would mean something to Moses' original audience because they've already crossed swords with these people in the, as they left Egypt and were traveling to the promised land. So that's Esau. What about Jacob? Okay, major shift in the story. God called Abram, said, you're going to have sons. And sure enough, he did. And God said, I'm going to perpetuate the promise through not the older, but the younger. And the the section ended with conflict between the brothers and them being separated in just the one son perpetuating the promise. So the same thing happens with Isaac. Isaac's got two sons, but there's all kinds of conflict in the family. The family blows apart, and the promise is perpetuated through just one of them, Jacob, and that's how the section ends, with the family in conflict. Now, this section starts with the family in conflict, and this begins in chapter 37, verse 1, and this will help you read. It actually, I'm sorry, it starts in verse 2. 
Verse 1 goes with the previous section. Esau is down there in Seir. Jacob is up here. There's conflict. There's separation. So now in verse in chapter 37, this section begins with Jacob. In just a few paragraphs, we find out that the family has completely been blown apart by favoritism, by both the mother and the father, by both Jacob uh, and uh, uh, by Jacob and conflict between the brothers to the point that the brothers are actually trying to kill one and sell him into slavery is completely blown apart. That's how the section starts. Now, let's do the math. What did God tell Abraham? I'm going to make of you a great nation. So let's do some arithmetic. If only one person out of each subsequent generation is part of the promise... How long is it going to take for them to be a multitude of people who number more than the stars in the sky? Well, they never will. They'll never be more than three or four. As long as these families keep blowing apart because of their sinful behavior towards each other and their disregard for God, there ain't going to be a nation. But from here to the end of the book, what we see is God works on all of them, on Jacob, on Judah, on Joseph, on Reuben, on all of them. One of the things that will most hinder your ability to understand this section of Genesis is if you think this is the story of Joseph. Moses gave it the title, These are the Records of the Generations of Jacob. And that's exactly what it is. It's about the whole family and what God is doing in the family to fix what's wrong with them and what's wrong with them. It's not what the pagans are influencing them to do. It's not danger from foreign enemies. Those God takes care of those just like that. Their real problem is their own sin. Their disregard for God and their own sin against each other. That's their real problem. And all of the stories in this section is God working in each of their individual lives to bring them to a point of repentance regarding their particular sins and to trust Him. I'll just point out some of the turning points here. Uh, The first one is with Judah and Tamar. It breaks my heart to read expensive commentaries that just throw their hands up and say, what is that in there for? Read the story. God is working on Judah's heart because of his total disregard for his responsibility to look after his family. I mean, after all, he sold his brother into slavery. And so what happens with Judah and Tamar is God is working. He actually kills two of Judah's sons because of their sin. One, we know what it was. The other one, we don't. But what, it, uh, what we come to is the point where in verse 26, Judah recognized these things when he gets caught red-handed in something wrong he had done. And he said, she's more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he, didn't, uh, he did not give relations with her again. God brought Judah to the point where he recognized his sinful failure to care for family. Now, later on, that's going to get transferred to Joseph, but God hasn't brought him that far yet. Um, 
God also is going to work on Joseph. Joseph, um, one commentary I had put that um, called Joseph uh, an upstart brat. I forget the term that he used. Anyway, Joseph had his own problems. Well, what Joseph does is he brings... Uh, God brings Joseph to the point through the trials in his life to where he recognizes that if God gives, if he has any authority, that authority has only been delegated to him by God and he's to use it to help others. That's what he says when uh, when his boss's wife propositions him, basically. And he says, there's no one greater in this house than I. And, and your, my boss has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And we're going to see what Joseph does is he's brought to the point where if he is elevated and given authority, that's not something for him to boast about. That's something for him to humbly use in the service of others. Reuben. Reuben, you may recall in the story, at one point, had slept with one of his father's other wives. It doesn't tell us why he did that, but that was probably a power grab. I could make a case for that. But at some point he backs off. As they walk through all of this deal with Joseph down in Israel, uh, down in Egypt, Reuben gets to the point where he's saying, look, we've been found out about our sin against our brother. Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy and you wouldn't listen? Now comes the reckoning from his blood. He, he says, he, he says, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. When you read way back when it happened in chapter 37, we don't know what Joseph was saying. All it says is that the brothers threw him in the well planning to sell him as a slave, and they sat down and ate their lunch. Man, that's cold-blooded. But what we find out here is while that was happening, Joseph was crying and screaming and pleading with his brothers. They didn't give a rip. But as we read this story, we're not seeing how God did this. But when you read the story, please, brothers and sisters, read what God is doing to cause these changes to happen in their heart. All of their hearts change. In fact, Jacob changes too. I won't find the verse and read it. But Jacob has spent his whole life knowing that God was going to give him the blessing. But he wouldn't wait. He's always conniving and scheming and lying and cheating to try to get it now. And God brings Jacob to the point where he has to tell his his sons, I can't control anymore. I don't know what's going to happen to my baby son, Benjamin. It's in God's hands. Jacob is finally at the end of his rope. And God says, that's just where I wanted you. The section ends different from all the others except for the first one. This section ends 
that instead of all the brothers being in conflict and scattered, now they're together in one place, confessing their sins to each other, repenting, forgiving each other, and acknowledging that they are God's servants. And it's because of, as you read these stories, it's what God is doing in their lives all along to steer them that way. Tamar and Joseph are not the heroes in this story. God is. So what is the blessing of Abraham? God shows us in Genesis that our real problem is not really those people out there. It's not those other nations and their pagan idolatry. It's our own sin, our own alienation from him and the havoc we wreak on each other and the punishment from God that we justly deserve. That is what Jacob and his family needed to be preserved from. The the famine was not something that just happened that God had to rescue Jacob and his family from. Jacob and his family were destroying themselves with sin and God planned and sent the famine to use it in their life to change their hearts. And so salvation comes at his initiative by grace through faith in him, not by, I couldn't think of a better way to word this, not by merely being associated with the context in which he reveals himself. Somebody come up to me later and tell me a better way to say that, but you'll understand it when I mean this. Being a descendant of Abraham will not save you. There are a bunch of people, Jesus made that over and over, there are a bunch of people that are descended from Abraham who are going to hell. And there are a lot of people who are Gentiles and they're not descendants of Abraham or Israel and they're going to be in heaven because that's not what determines it. Also, being a member of the Israelite community under the Mosaic law will not save you. The Old Testament saints understood that in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles teach that. Being an Israelite and follow, being a Jewish And following the law will not save you. Trust in Jesus Christ does. And this still applies to us. Being a member of a local church, behaving in an acceptable manner, will not save you. There's only one thing it will. That's faith and trust in Jesus Christ to fix our problem. And that's our sin. And in this life, we will probably, just as Jesus did, have to endure a lot of abuse from people who are not accepting that. Um, I won't go over that. The purpose of that chart actually was to show, this is a picture of a forest that Moses draws for us, and we get lost in the trees. But look at the forest. God is setting apart a people in a miraculous way, three generations of men married to barren women who have children. And then finally the family begins to grow because of God's gracious work in their hearts. If you haven't come to a point where you recognize that your problem is with God, because just like the rest of us, you're a sinner that wants to do your own thing and disregard God, God has said, you know what? I'm providing a way of escape for you of my judgment. I'm going to judge sin, but just like I did with Noah, I'm going to provide a way of escape. And all you have to do is trust me. And my son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And if you trust him, I will forgive your sins and I will work in your heart 
to circumcise your heart and transform you back into the person you should be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you indeed for your grace. Thank you that you've shown us what you're doing and that we can participate in that blessing simply by your grace, that we can't earn it, and it's by your miraculous power. Lord, help us to recognize our own desire to rebel against you as our greatest threat to our life with you and not what some political party or what our neighbors or what might be in school textbooks. That our problem is that we need to be right with you and trust you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.